Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what's up for today? So today we're going to be talking about an interview that Pete Buttigieg did with Face the Nation. And we talked about Mayor Pete, as he calls himself, in the last episode with the Iowa Democrats Hall of Fame. But in this episode, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into exactly how is it that he's communicating and what are some of the ways and things to look out for. There's some things from some of our previous episodes that you'll really want to reference and go back to listen to in this, where we're going to be talking about how is it that he has been able to gain such attraction and how is it that someone who in a position, which is a mayor, usually would not be able to get to where he's been. We're really going to be breaking down how is it that he does that, what is it that he's doing well, and what is it that could even be improved upon. So let's take a listen to the first part of this clip where he's talking with Margaret Brennan of Face the Nation. Mr. Mayor, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me on. You said uh, the Democratic Party can't go back to the 90s, can't go back to the 2000s. The party, though, seems to sort of be trying to figure out what it is. What does it mean to be a Democrat right now? Well, I think it means being committed to American values that lead you in a progressive direction. So uh, I talk a lot, for example, about freedom. I think freedom is something that across my lifetime has been talked about as though it were a conservative value. But it's an American value. And I don't think that you enjoy freedom if uh, you're afraid to start a new business because leaving your old job means losing your health care. I think uh, women's reproductive freedom is under assault, and only Democrats seem prepared to defend it. Uh, Very important freedom in my own life, the freedom to choose your spouse, uh, is something that uh, really only exists by the grace of a single Supreme Court vote, and it's the kind of thing that progressives are standing for. We're thinking about economic freedom. We're thinking about uh, security in a different way uh, that's actually ready for the 21st century, where there are security threats that you can't answer by putting up a wall. So I think a a meaningful democratic platform today is one that will make as much sense in the 2050s as it does right now. And the choices we make now around climate, around taxes, around infrastructure are going to decide whether we will be able to look back on these years as the years that we set the United States on a better path or the years that we really failed to protect what makes our country the country that we love to live in. All right. And right at the very beginning, we hear Pete Buttigieg framing things in this very value-based way. Now, what happens is is that this is a question which is very open-ended. What does it mean to be a Democrat right now? Well, he could answer that in a thousand different ways. And this was, if you notice how quickly he answered this question, this was clearly prepared. And he answers it in this way, which allows the mind to fill in whatever it is that it would like to fill in. So I think it means 
being committed to American values that lead you in a progressive direction. Now, what does that mean? He talks about freedom. So he's saying a progressive direction, which I think acknowledges progressives who would vote for Bernie Sanders or for other progressive candidates. But he also doesn't exactly say that he's a progressive. He just says it's a progressive direction. And I think he's really pacing where the Democratic Party is right now. You know, let's remember that Bernie Sanders, when he ran in 2016, his intention was to push the party further left, more progressive. And then Mayor Pete begins to frame things in terms of values. And he goes into values. Now, the wonderful thing about talking about values is that's something that can be easily reframed. He can take a value, which is a high-level construct, and he can put in whatever he wants to make that mean. And then he goes into this value of freedom. Well, what is freedom? And he says, well, it used to be thought of as a conservative value, but it's actually an American value. And so he gets to redefine now, what does freedom mean? And he says, well, I don't think you enjoy freedom if this. You're not enjoying freedom if this. If you're not free to start your own business because leaving your job means losing your health care. And notice how one of the things that Mayor Pete oftentimes does is that he goes into these very broad-based appeals, but then he brings it down to a specific policy level. And so what I want you to notice here is that he has this nice blend of thematic appeals like freedom along with policy appeals. And if you think back to that episode that we did right more toward the beginning of the podcast, it was episode number 11 where we, t- where we were interviewing Michael Reitzes. And he had written and co-authored that paper called Obama on the Stump, where they broke down the different types of appeals that Obama was doing. And if you remember, there were four of them. There was morality, there were policy appeals, there were thematic appeals, and then there were factitious appeals. And the ones that Obama was doing primarily were thematic appeals, followed by second policy. And we hear Pete here doing... A very similar thing. He goes into the big picture theming like, you know, a better O'Rourke might do, for example, but then he's bringing it back to policy and he interweaves it, you know, very nicely within it. So I think that's one of the real distinguishing characteristics of how he communicates versus some of the other candidates. Yeah, the interesting thing about Pete, um, and you'll hear it here, just like Taylor said, is that he does, he really excels at talking about those thematic approaches and really, you know, speaking about these very, very broad ideas. Um, And so you hear him in the beginning really soaring with this question. He's able to not get into specifics and really talk about, you know, values and value-based stuff. You're going to see him later on in the interview when he's asked specifically about, you know, very detailed issues that he continues to pivot back to those broad, you know, those broad values and, you know, weaves policy into that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But at the same time, they're very broad policies. And so that's something that, you know, I want to mark on here is that pay attention to exactly what does he say when he's talking about policy? And so if we take a look at this first question here, when he's talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a Democrat? Again, that 
Very easy softball question. He can answer it any way he wants to. And he pivots to that freedom and then touches on, you know, every single thing that, you know, could be a democratic value, which is amazing because what he's actually doing here is he's taking something that, you know, I think a lot of conservatives would think that they own. They own this idea of economic freedom that, you know, nobody should be able to tell me what to do with my money or with my land or whatever it is. And he's making something that can appeal to both sides. He's got, you know, a lot of red meat for the Democrats talking about, you know, uh, gay marriage and uh, you know, all of these these progressive issues. But in the context of a very conservative value and a conservative perspective that can appeal to a lot of different types of people. And I think that that's one of uh, Mayor Pete's strong suits here is that he's able to, you know, really speak across the aisle um, it, with values and language that might be able to appeal to both. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. Like if we were to sit in on the meeting of Pete with his advisors, like what would they be talking about as in terms of who to target? Because it does seem like he's definitely going after progressives here and, again, acknowledging that more progressive nature of what the Democratic Party is now. And at the same time, he's bringing in a lot of these ideas that you might have heard from Tea Party Republicans or from libertarians of, you know, there's there's freedom and this is what it means. And he's using multiple points of motivation. So there's both away from, in other words, pain motivation. And then there's also a pleasure motivation, meaning, hey, this is what it means to live your life fully. And in the second part of this clip here, you know, which again, it was just really short, but he begins it off with this really big bang. He talks about the future and then he says, well, our platform should make as much sense in 2050 as it does now. And the choices we make right now are going to decide if we look back and we are setting the United States on a better path. Or if we failed to protect the country that we loved to live in. Now, what he's doing here is that he's bringing that person all the way into the future. And then he has them look back from the future point at what happens if they don't make a choice right now. So it's really interesting here how he's playing with with time. And he has those two parts of motivation there, both the pleasure of, well, this is the country you love to live in and we're going to be in this better direction. But also, if you don't do that, this is what's going to happen. And immediately after that, he's talking about security. The security threats, as he says, that you can't answer by putting up a wall, which, of course, you know, we know what he's what he's really referencing there. So let's get to the next clip where he's going to be asked about foreign policy. Let's see how he answers this one. You faulted Democrats in a speech this week for kind of not having much of a strategic foreign policy for the past few decades. What think, do you mean by that? I think that uh, it's been difficult, even confusing, to figure out what our foreign policy is because Democrats became so absorbed in opposing whatever the Republicans were doing. Now, often, rightly so, what the Republicans were doing was often terrible, but uh, we got so sucked into that 
Uh, for example, uh, take the Iraq War, which uh, I opposed as a student and continue to think was uh, a terrible idea. Uh, we were so horrified by the way that democracy promotion was done at gunpoint then that it very nearly made our party into isolationists, when actually uh, we've often been the ones who believed in more international engagement. And so, so you would fault Joe Biden, who you'll be standing on the debate stage with, for his vote? Well, I certainly think that vote was a mistake, and, and I have a different view on that, uh, that conflict. Uh, but it's more than any individual vote or any individual conflict. It's what worldview is going to anchor our approach? We're not going to be able to figure out who we are as Democrats by keying off the Republicans and just deciding when we're against it and when we're going to accommodate it. We have to have our own view. And I think our own view needs to be based on the idea that American interests, American values, and American relationships all need to fit together. And I think that'll help us deal not only with threats we've been thinking about a lot, like stateless terrorism and the kinds of things I dealt with as a, as a military officer specializing in terrorism, but also uniquely 21st century threats like climate disruption that is a threat to life and limb in this country. Uh, things like cybersecurity that didn't even exist uh, as a major national security concern uh, just one or two generations ago. We've got to have a plan for that, too. And it's very clear that the U.S. is adrift. I would argue under this administration, the U.S. does not have a foreign policy. Maybe an approach, but the approach is not pretty. It involves coddling dictators. It, it involves uh, blaming uh, fellow Americans for a lot of the problems we have around the world. Uh, and it's no substitute for a policy in which the U.S. is leading. We can either lead the rest of the world or we can resent the rest of the world. We can't do both. And so in this clip, one thing that I want you to notice when you're listening to Pete Buttigieg give his answers is that he likes to pivot away from actually answering the question and get into these high-minded ideals here. And, you know, he comes off, again, like I said earlier, you know, speaking about policy, but there's no actual substance. There's no policy prescriptions. He just says, we need to think about this. We need to be considering this. We need to be talking to these people. Um, so, so that's the one thing I would want you to pay attention in all these clips going forward. Right. Yeah. And he's asked specifically about Joe Biden. And this is, you know, a really presumptive question. So you would fault Joe Biden. He just says, well, I would have a different view on that conflict. And he, you know, outright says, hey, that's not, you know, the decision that I would make. But then he goes on to talk about what worldview is going to anchor our approach. We aren't going to figure out who we are by keying off to the Republicans. We have to have our own view. And so he has this repeated word of view, the viewpoint. He talks about its American interests and American values. And it's not just whether we're going to go against something versus accommodating it. But we want to have our own view. So when you hear repetition like this, Notice that he's trying to make a point here. He's, he's trying to say, this is what I have been coached to talk about, is to talk about viewpoints, to talk about views. And what does it mean to have our own view versus someone else's view? And, you know, even that word anchor is, you know, metaphorical, right? What does it mean to anchor an approach? And he goes on to talk about the U.S. being adrift. So here we have... The, the nautical anchors, right? It's like we're, we're not anchored. We're adrift. And we're adrift because the U.S., as he says, does not have a foreign policy, at least not under this current administration. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, 
what he means is that we don't have a foreign policy that he would approve of or that he would agree with. But by saying that, it's as though there's something missing within this administration. So the U.S. doesn't have a foreign policy. Hmm, how exactly can he say that? Instead, our policy is coddling dictators, blaming fellow Americans, all of the things that, of course, he's referencing right here with Donald Trump. And then he has this nice little either or, this what we would call an exclusive or, this contrasting statement here. We want to lead. And we can either lead the rest of the world or resent the rest of the world. We can't do both. Well, is that really true, that there can be no resentment at the same time as there is leading? And what does resenting the world have to do with leading the world? What does leading the world even mean? And so you see, even though he says it very authoritatively, and he makes this very strong kind of line in the sand, it's either this way or it's that way. It's either black or it's white. When you really dig into it, what is he actually saying here? What, is it, what does it actually mean to lead you know, in, in that way? Yeah, he does a really great job here of putting up veiled criticisms of others like Joe Biden or Donald Trump without actually calling them out. But then when he's called out on it, he does a great job of then pivoting back to his broader values and issues rather than pointing out the specific differences that he's essentially being implicitly asked so, you know, it's really funny how he's able to, to do that little dance there. So he doesn't actually have to criticize anybody by name, but you sort of you sort of understand who it is that he's actually talking about there. Now, in this next clip, we're going to hear Mayor Pete talk about how he is different. What is his unique proposition as a candidate? And he's asked directly about this. And I think that the way he responds to it is very good. And it's clearly something that his campaign has planned out. Uh, basically, they, they sat down and they said, well, what's good about being a mayor? And so you're going to hear this in this next clip where he really takes this whole idea of, well, I'm a mayor and therefore, like some people would say he's a mayor, so he doesn't have experience. He's going to take that whole idea and just turn it on its head and really talk about how being a mayor is actually you know, way better than some of these other politicians. So let's take a listen to this one. You are in a field of about two dozen candidates. We found out on the debate stage at the end of the month, you'll be up there with the two frontrunners, with Joe Biden and with Bernie Sanders. How are you going to distinguish yourself? Well, I think it's safe to say that I'm not like the others. And for voters who are looking for a new approach, not what new values. Uh, well, I just have a different style and a different vocabulary. Part of it's because I'm a mayor. And so my world is one of being on the ground. We, we eat what we cook as mayors. We, we uh, live with the policy decisions we make. There's no uh, force field of, of staff between me and the constituents who count on me to deliver everything from uh, life safety and security to clean, safe drinking water to good economic development. You just have to get things done. I also come from the industrial Midwest, the exact part of the country where Democrats had trouble getting our message through in recent years, which is part of how we got the president that we have now. And I'm someone who's committed to taking on the flaws in our systems at a very basic level, our political and economic systems. If they weren't flawed, we wouldn't be here. A president like the one we're living with today 
does not even get within cheating distance of the Oval Office under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. But we're not living under normal circumstances. And I think we need uh, new voices ready to explain what it's going to take in order to make sure that we have better wages and a better standard of living and a more secure life and also a social fabric that actually makes us all feel like Americans rather than being pitted against each other. So here's an interesting thing right here is that Mayor Pete is being asked a horse race question. And you're going to hear a couple more come later on in the in the show here. But, you know, he's asked point blank about how are you going to distinguish yourself? So he addresses this one, you know, relatively head on um, by, you know, talking about how he is a mayor, somebody who, you know, might not have the foreign policy experience, you know, all those disadvantages that Taylor talked about right before the clip. And again, turns it on its head and starts pointing out all of the things that, you know, might make a mayor more qualified. Now, you know, he sort of does this great job of distracting from all of those uh, all of those issues that, you know, others might point out by, you know, pointing out he's on the ground somehow, you know, being on the ground and, and listening to people in these um, in the rural areas or, you know, these industrial Midwest parts of the country, um, that that makes him better at handling, you know, macroeconomic problems and, you know, global foreign policy issues. You know, I don't know if there's a real connection there, but, you know, it he does a good job of taking things that, you know, might not make connections if you think about it too much. Um, but he, he sort of bridges them in this way of saying like, hey, we're having problems in the industrial Midwest. I'm from the industrial Midwest, so I must know how to fix it. Uh, he takes two things that are, you know, perhaps, you know, loosely related and then makes that into a strong connection of, you know, because of this is sort of the same as this other thing. I must be the solution, um, which is it's kind of funny. Right. Yeah. Alex just broke it down there for you. You know, that's that's what he's doing. He's taking multiple things that are loosely related and he strings them together and he starts at the very beginning here you know he's being asked this question well how are you going to distinguish yourself and the first thing out of his mouth is well it's it's safe to say that i'm not like the others well but in what way what what does that mean uh they need a new approach and you know, to her credit, the interviewer then says, what do you mean by that? What does it mean a new approach? Because, of course, just about all of the Democrats right now are saying the same thing. They're saying I need a new approach. And then he pivots into different style, different vocabulary, because I'm a mayor. Now, when we go into some of the metaphors here, one of the things that you want to pay attention to is In what way is he communicating? What system of representing the world? So does he talk about it in a visual way, what you can see, things like a viewpoint, like we were saying earlier, or an insight, things like that? Is he talking about it in a feeling way? Well, now he goes into a food metaphor or a tasting metaphor, and he says, we eat what we cook as mayors. Well, this really fits into his whole theme as I'm on the ground. I'm doing this. This is the real thing. This isn't having a bunch of staff between me and the constituents. We eat what we cook. And for someone who cooks, that immediately, it, it gives them that sense, that kind of heartwarming sense of, oh, he understands me because he cooks just like I cook. 
it might not make a lot of logical sense, but it makes a tremendous amount of emotional sense, you know, to say it, you know, in that way. And then he switches from gustatory or a tasting metaphor to auditory, a hearing metaphor. He starts talking about voices. So he says, you know, the president wouldn't have gotten gotten close, but we need now new voices to explain what it's going to take in order to have, and here's what he says, better wages, better standard of living, and a more secure life. Now, I'll bet we could take that quote and we could put it, you know, we could say one of the, you know, 20-some Democratic candidates had said this, which one said it? And you wouldn't have any idea because this is so vague, so ill-defined. It doesn't actually mean much. Better wages. Okay, wonderful. How exactly are you going to accomplish that? What does it mean to have a better standard of living? Isn't that just another word for economy and a more secure life? Does that imply then that life is not secure now, right? And we've we've heard that kind of scaremongering from you know both sides, but probably more on the on the right wing side of, well, we're just not secure. We need to secure ourselves. We need to do this. And perhaps that's also some of his, you know, cross-aisle appeal. And the last thing he gets into here in this clip is this idea of feeling like Americans, okay? We want for us all to feel like Americans versus being pitted against each other. Now, notice how this is, you know, number one, a unity messaging. This is having to do with that that uh, togetherness, that yes, we can, this, this message that the Democratic Party has been working on for a while now. And what he's saying here is, hey, it's not enough to be an American, right? You actually need to feel like an American, okay? And when you feel like an American, what does it mean to feel like an American? Well, what that means is togetherness. What that means is unity. What it means is all of those liberal values, you have to actually feel it and not just be it. And so it's really interesting here how he's now transitioning. Again, he went from the tasting metaphors. Then he went to the sound metaphors. Now he's going into the emotional feeling metaphors of what it is that you uh, you actually you know need to do. And one thing that I want to point out here is this new voices thing that Taylor talked about. You know, he said those better wages, better standards of living, more secure life, and better social fabric... Why do we need new voices to achieve those things? He doesn't really say that, but he just implies that we need new voices to explain what it's going to take in order to have better wages and all of those things. And so what this is actually, once again, it's a veiled criticism or contrast with Joe Biden or, you know, maybe other more, you know, uh, the vague establishment voices of the party that he's trying to differentiate himself from. So he's trying to draw a contrast with him and Joe Biden without actually saying Joe Biden. Um, and so I, I find that really interesting and, and sort of something to point out right there. And in the next clip, you're going to hear just a, a ton more of that. In fact, he's going to go, you know, directly there. So let's take a listen to this part. You've praised Bernie Sanders in the past. In fact, we went back and looked at an essay you wrote, an award-winning one about him. Yeah. Uh, you said... His energy, candor, conviction, ability to bring people together, stand against the current of opportunism, moral compromise, and partisanship, which runs rampant on the American political scene. You were a fan of his. Yeah. If you weren't running, would you be voting for Bernie Sanders? 
Uh, you know, it's not unusual in a moment like this to admire somebody and also find yourself competing with them. And I still admire a lot of those qualities that uh, drew me to him when I was an 18-year-old writing that essay. Uh, the fact that uh, he was somebody who says what he believes. I think all of us ought to do that. But I have a different approach. Uh, I have a, a somewhat different message and I represent a very different messenger. Do you and think so, that, that moment has passed for him? I think, I think the moment we're in right now calls for something new. And uh, I think that, uh, again, our values are the right values. I mean, the values that make us Democrats shouldn't change. But we've got to find a different vocabulary around them. We've got to find a way to communicate in terms of real-world impact uh, what it means to go with a progressive direction rather than stay on this drift that we have right now in Washington. And if we get it right, uh, we can win. You can see that very clearly in how healthcare which is an issue that we got killed over back in 2010, was the winning issue for us uh, in 2018. It shows that when we're talking about the concrete impacts of our policies in Americans' everyday lives, which is what a mayor thinks about all day because that's what we're accountable for, uh, most Americans are with us. The crazy thing is right now, there is a strong American majority aligned with democratic positions on everything from our desire to raise wages to our insistence on universal health care uh, to our belief in bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform and uh, common sense gun safety. Most you Americans are with us on the issues, which is exactly why this president functions by getting us talking not about uh, Americans' lives, but rather about him and whatever outrage of the day he has uh, perpetrated uh, in person or on Twitter in order to get us all focused on nothing but the White House. So in the start of this clip, he's talking about Bernie Sanders. He's asked a very tough question, really. You know, you've praised Bernie Sanders in the past. Would you be voting for him? And interviewers will ask this type of question in order to really provoke a response, both conscious and subconscious, so that people looking at it can see, well, does this person really believe that he's better than Bernie to run run the country? And he does a very interesting reframing here as he's asked this question. So he talks about it's not unusual to admire somebody and then also find yourself competing with him. Well, again, he doesn't answer the question. He redirects from the question. He doesn't actually say whether he would be voting for him. He just says that he is admiring him because he can't deny that because he wrote this essay. But then he immediately goes into and that 18-year-old writing that essay, meaning him at a much younger age, or, you know, a little bit younger because Pete Buttigieg is pretty young. Um, you know, the 18-year-old, you know, was thinking this, implying that he doesn't, you know, still still think of it that way. And, you know, then he says, but I have a different approach, right? And I represent a very different messenger. But how is it different? How is his approach different? See, that part is harder for him to answer. And what does it even mean for him to be representing a different a different messenger. Yeah. And again, sort of leading with that whole, you know, mayor aspect of it, going back to that, you know, this is what a mayor thinks about every day as if being a mayor equals a more, you know, salt of the earth a more grounded approach that understands how to handle, you know, the issues at the microeconomic level or, you know, at the, the tiny town mayor of South Bend, Indiana level, all the way up to president of the United States. Um, and somehow that this doesn't equate to Bernie Sanders, who also, by the way, was a mayor um, in Vermont uh, for quite a long time as well. And so he, he sort of has, if anything, equal or greater 
um, qualifications than him. He sort of glosses over that and, and focuses on how he's currently a mayor and that's how he's, you know, somehow better. So I just, I, I don't know if he's really making this connection all that well, but uh, he does a good job when he's phrasing it and when he's got the spotlight and able to speak at length. The, inter- the most interesting thing to me about this whole thing, though, is that the reporter doesn't spend any time actually, you know, pressing him on any of these things. Like she sort of just allows him to continue unquestioned in a lot of his assertions here um, without actually, you know, pressing him and forcing him to elaborate on any of these, you know, sort of like broad based platitudes. And then the question comes, and has Bernie's moment passed? Which, again, is, if you think about it, like, how is he going to answer that question? Right. And what she's really testing for here is, can he answer that in a politically correct way? Can he answer it in a nice way? And then he says, well, I think the moment we're in right now calls for something new. Now, again, you're in Pete Buttigieg's you know, campaign headquarters, you're brainstorming, how do we get our message across? And what he comes up with, I'm new, I'm, you know, grassroots salt of the earth. Well, what does new really mean? New means young. So they said, well, what can people possibly Mm. attack you on? They can attack you on being young. So instead of saying I'm young, I'm inexperienced, it's I'm new. So Bernie and Joe Biden and Trump are old. Right. Pete is new. And what's the new thing to do? Well, he tells us what the new thing to do is. We have to have a different vocabulary that creates a real world impact. Again, how does vocabulary create an impact? You know, the connections here are a little bit, you know, tenuous, but he he does seem to string them together. Um, That's then going to lead us in a progressive direction. So what does new mean? New means the progressive direction. But not Bernie, because Bernie's old. He's old progressive. We're new progressive because, you know, Pete Pete is young, so he has to spin it that way. You know, and what's the opposite? Because remember, with any story, we have to have a hero and we have to have a villain, right? So the hero is Mayor Pete, right? Who is the villain or what is the villain? It's the drift in Washington. It's Trump. It's the things that are the inaction in Washington, not the concrete policies, which is what a mayor thinks about all day, right? What the mayor continues to think about. And he says, and most Americans are with us. And then he goes on to explain what they're with, and most Americans are with us. And then after talking about this, this is really interesting. You might even want to listen back to this clip to see how smoothly he does this, because probably hearing it the first time you didn't fully hear it. He says, most Americans are with us. And then he says, which is exactly why, which this is what's called a complex equivalence. Basically, it's this means that A means B or A equals B, right? So most Americans are with us, which is exactly why. And then he goes on to talk about Trump and how Trump is being selfish and how Trump is leading people against them and how Trump is ineffective and all of these things that people don't like about Trump. But what does that have to do with most Americans being with him on values, on progressive direction? What does that have to do with the specific policies? What does Trump have to do with the progressive policies that most Americans are with us? It has nothing to do with it, but he links it together because this is a technique in politics. This is a technique in rhetoric is being able to string one thing into the next thing. 
So the next clip is one of my my favorites of this interview. Um, we're going to jump a little bit ahead to now. He's being asked questions about you know the diverse Democratic electorate, and you know how is Pete going to win over um, some you know African American or at least diverse votes uh, within the party. And listen to the important pivots that he makes in this clip here. He, you know, expertly navigates this from a question about, you know, how are you going to win over votes to speaking about some, you know, broad thematic appeals. So listen to this. How does the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a state that has less than 10 percent of it is African-American, how do you win that important part of the electorate? How do you convince them that you are going to fight yeah, so uh, my own city of, of South Bend is quite diverse. We're about 40%, 45% non-white. About a quarter of our city is African-American. So we're more diverse than the state as a whole. And it's one of the reasons that uh, as a mayor seeking to serve everybody, uh, I've had to really learn how to take on board the concerns and uh, and the issues that uniquely face uh, Latino residents, black residents, and, and others, uh, many of which are the result of institutional and systemic racism. I think it's especially important that uh, a president recognize that because uh, you know for too long I think we've had this assumption out there that if if we just replaced racist policies and, and racist systems with neutral ones everything would take care of itself but it just doesn't work that way not when for decades or even hundreds of years some people have systematically had their opportunity to build wealth to participate in society legally constrained I mean, we're talking about policies, not just not some accident of culture that have delivered us to the point where we are. And that's why I think uh, an agenda for black America needs to include not only criminal justice reform, which clearly uh, is needed in order to have more racial equity, but also Further look than at, what the Trump administration has done so far. Yes, although it might be the one thing that they've done right domestically is moved or gestured in the direction of criminal justice reform. But it needs to go further. It needs to pay attention to racial inequity. But also, uh, we should be talking not just about the black experience with criminal justice, but black entrepreneurship, what's going on with wealth building in minority communities and, and how the, the United States could support it. We need to be talking about housing, uh, home ownership. We've got to be talking about health and education, all areas which can hold people back, but also areas where the right kind of intervention with justice in mind can help make America a better place. And I think we will all be better off uh, when we are in a world where we can no longer say that people are being held back by their race. So Pete was asked a very specific question. How do you win over that part of the electorate, being African-Americans? And so he sort of starts by answering the question in concrete terms. You know, being in a mayor, you know, I know what it's like for, you know, the 40% of my city um, and trying to govern for everybody. But then he really quickly pivots and broadens out the scope of his answer. And now it's about how a president should understand systemic racism. And so instead of talking about, you know, this uh, horse race question about how do you win over, uh, you know, African-Americans and how do you convince these people? Instead, he's talking about how, a, you know, the values of, uh, of a president and how they should understand systemic racism um, and how the current, you know, president, you know, might not. And, you know, how, uh, you know, politicians have been ignoring these types of people for decades and generations. And, you know, we need to, you know, make right about this. And and this is my policy, you know, and this is my general philosophy. Um, And so this is important because this is a, a very subtle shift that politicians are trained to do. 
to get away from talking about polls. Um, now, often, and this is a very frequent thing that the media likes to do, is ask politicians um, running for office about the horse race. So how are you going to win over this electorate? What are you going to do about, you know, this group of voters? Um, you know, how does it feel to be in second place and third place and so on? And, you know, uh, what's the latest poll look like for you? Politicians don't want to get into that because it distracts from their messaging. So they want to pivot back to talking about the issues as quickly as possible. And so that's what he's doing right here is able to take that that shift of of, you know, this specific thing and then instead talk about, you know, very broad based ideas and values that he cares about. Um, so if you listen back, I encourage you to take another listen just so you can hear that that shift from talking about specifics to that broad based, you know, value system. And when he starts off at the beginning, he's asked in a very pointed way, well, Indiana is not a diverse state. And then you hear that subtle reframe, which is, well, Indiana is not diverse, but South Bend is. We have this many of that. We have this many of this. So the interesting thing about this is that, you know, being the mayor, he can do something which other politicians can't necessarily do, which he moves from that micro level to the macro level or back. You know, in this in this uh, situation, the macro level of the state didn't really work for him. And so it was like, you know, that question of, well, you don't have that many African-Americans, you don't have that many minorities. Well, he doesn't want to answer that. So instead, he's going to answer something different, which is I'm going to talk about how South Bend is diverse. And then I'm going to start talking about, as Alex just said, the broad ideas, not the specifics, you know, of it. And as he gets into this, it's it's really interesting when he starts talking about the systemic racism, because if I'm not mistaken, I believe that Pete Buttigieg has been pushed a little bit further left on this issue because of politicians like, you know, Kamala Harris or, um, you know, some of the some of the others that are talking about reparations, for example. And if you hear what he says, he says, well, you know, we've thought of it in the past as going from racist policies to neutral ones, but that's not enough. Well, what's the scope of that, right? What is what is he saying there in terms of what policy distinction would be enough? He says that that wouldn't work. And it just sounds to me, you know, from hearing him now versus hearing him in earlier interviews that he's definitely moved in a more progressive way. And this is actually what he's emphasizing now. I didn't hear this so much from Pete when he was just starting in the race. Perhaps he's been coached to do that or he's looking at the direction of what's needed, you know, to win in that uh, in that or what what groups he needs to win over. And he says this thing, you know, it's kind of interesting thing here. He says, well, we want the right kind of intervention with justice in mind. And again, we talk about how all the time we hear politicians communicating in this way where we think that we know what that means. You know, when you heard that, did you fill in your own picture inside of your mind of what does it mean to feel uh, to have justice? Okay, does that mean affirmative action? Does that mean, you know, stronger, um, you know, reducing sentencing disparities? Does that, what does that mean exactly with justice in mind, right? And what is the right kind of intervention? Well, a lot of people would disagree with that, right? Conservatives are going to have their idea of what a right intervention is and what justice means. 
But again, we hear him going back to values first, values first, justice as a value, freedom as a value, security as a value. And as long as he's talking about that, he doesn't need to get into specifics. Now, the next clip, he does a little bit more of this. Again, he's being asked a very horse racy question um, about, you know, whether he can beat Trump or not. And instead of really answering, he's going to be pivoting to talk about the history of American elections. So let's take a listen to this one. The CBS News uh, conducted some polling here. It's called the CBS News Battleground Tracker. And according to it, three quarters of the voters asked who support Joe Biden feel that he would probably beat President Trump. Only 30 percent of your supporters, though they like you, uh, believe that you could beat him. How do you convince people that you're the best challenger? Well, I think the most dangerous thing we could do Uh, ironically, is to try to play it safe. This president won by portraying our party as defenders of the system. And there were a lot of people, certainly where I live, in the industrial Midwest, who uh, are so furious with the system, politically and economically, the ways it's let them down, that they voted for somebody they know is not a good person. They voted for somebody they disliked. It was a vote to burn the house down. And the the brew of what happened in, in that campaign not only the nefarious activity, uh, not only the, the xenophobia and the racism that contributed to the Trump campaign, but the, the fact that it ever got this close is a result, I think, partly, of the Democratic Party being viewed as just offering up more of the same. Uh, I believe it is time for something completely different. And Americans, as a general rule, tend to elect whoever appears to be the opposite of the president they've just had. It's how you get somebody like, uh, uh, like Ronald Reagan after Jimmy Carter. It's how you get somebody like Barack Obama after George W. Bush. If you're looking for the opposite of the current president, I would argue that a Midwestern, middle-class, new-generation mayor, somebody who actually served in the military when it was his turn, uh, somebody with a totally different style, like me, is about as opposite as it gets. So what can, first off, what I love is her facial re- reaction at the end of that uh, is is amazing. Margaret Brennan does this like double take sort of uh, blinks and looks up at the sky as if she can't believe this answer and then looks back at him. So he was asked a horse race question. You know, voters don't think you can beat Trump. How can you convince them that you're the best challenger? So he goes back. And uh, says that, you know, the fact that it even got close to uh, this close for Trump to get elected uh, represents a failure of the Democratic Party to change and offer up uh, and that they're offering up more of the same, Um, which is, you know, it's a really interesting assertion that, you know, all of those things uh, that happened were the result of Democratic Party just failing to change and, and offering up candidate after candidate that's the same. But it's also a veiled criticism, again, of, you know, Joe Biden and uh, perhaps Bernie Sanders and even Hillary Clinton um, right there. And then, you know, to sort of compound on that, he goes into this thing about, you know, Americans tend to elect opposites and that, you know, he, he gives a couple of examples of, you know, Republicans and Democrats that have very different values and styles and that because these people were opposites, I'm the next logical successor to Donald Trump, um, which, you know, again, he didn't, I, I just don't think he did, had enough time to really frame this and and, and provide enough foundation um, for this. But the biggest thing here is that, like, he he doesn't really 
answer the question again. The the question was, Joe Biden, voters believe Joe Biden can beat Trump. How do you convince them that you can beat him instead? And instead, he talks about how Americans try to elect opposites, and I'm an opposite. That's not the answer. Um, but it does fit very well into his thematic and uh, and sort of like narrative-based um, uh, justification for his campaign and his candidacy. Yeah, it's like for him being a, a challenger, he needs to be someone who brings something unique to the race. You know, with, with 22 uh, Democrats in the race, he's looking for to differentiate himself. And really, he's looking to differentiate himself from, you know, the top five, you know, of which, you know, he's he's in the top of that and or he's, you know, within within the top. And he goes into this this idea of, well, what does it mean to be different? I believe it's someone different. And what he says, he basically like gives his profile and you can even hear his <laughs> voice as he's saying this, where he realizes, you know, it's probably a bad, you know, Midwestern value <laughs> to be a little bit too self-promotional. Right. But I just feel like I have to do it right now. I feel like I have to just, you know, boost myself up and you know, he just says like, you know, well, what does different mean? Well, that's Midwestern, middle class, the new generation. Now it's it's almost explicit, right? New means young, just like, you know, I was saying before, right? A mayor, okay? Someone who actually served in the military when it was their turn, which, you know, in contrast to, to Trump, but, you know, going into that that veteran thing, someone like me. And then you know he just links it together, and it's just amazing how he can even how he can even say that. Um, but he just takes all of his you know different values and you know puts puts them in that way. And maybe that's maybe that's why you know Margaret had that had that reaction on her face. <laughs> um, so they get done with asking sort of the horse racy questions, um, which Pete you know honestly does a great job of pivoting away from um and talking about values and now they're instead um you know she's trying to nail him down on some foreign policy specifics which uh you're gonna love the reactions to these because he again he doesn't talk about any specific concrete actions he would take but again switches to those vague value based answers and answers the question without really answering it which is exactly what politicians are trained to do so that you're focused on the value that the candidate has as opposed to any specific um, policy prescriptions. So take a listen to this one. I want to ask you about foreign policy. Um, You laid out your foreign policy vision this week in big speech. Let's talk about some of the specifics. Do you believe the Trump administration when it says that those attacks on tankers that happened this week were conducted by Iran? We're seeing more information come in uh, as we speak. There is certainly uh, concern that uh, this is consistent with a pattern of malignant behavior by Iran. What I'm also concerned about is that this appears to be part of an escalation where this administration might be leading us on a path to war that could get away from this White House very quickly. Uh, Look, it it is nothing new for Iran to be acting in destabilizing ways in their region. We see it quite a bit. Uh, the question is, what are we going to do to make things more stable before the situation becomes uncontrollable? So what would you do? Well, first of all, engage our allies. 
uh, we are not alone, at least we shouldn't be acting alone. And if we want to see stability in the Middle East, we should be engaging with our partners there, as well as allies like our European partners, who are such an important part of the Iran nuclear deal. And by the way, another thing I would never have done is mm -hmm. to get us out of the nuclear deal, setting off a chain reaction that has destabilized the regional security framework and the politics of that area, and making it that much harder for any moderates that, that are still in the Iranian regime to get anywhere because they look foolish for having staked their careers on the idea that you could trust Americans. We need to have a completely different approach. And when the same people who led us to the war in Iraq, like the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, are now apparently guiding our policy toward Iran in, in the White House, it makes you wonder whether we can really take this president at face value when he says he doesn't want us to go to war. You also said you would rejoin that nuclear accord with Iran. But the UN watchdog, the IAEA, has already said that Iran is ramping up its production of nuclear fuel. There are bans on arms that are going to expire right on the precipice of the election and shortly after you'd be entering office. So is that really a viable alternative? We're going to have to do something new. The point is that we never should have left it in the first so place. So you want new negotiations and a well, new deal with Iran? Any negotiation is going to have to meet the needs and the realities of the moment. Unfortunately, the moment we're in is one where uh, the United States' influence in this region has diminished because of uh, the, the way that, that we have withdrawn. Uh, so what we're going to have to do is re-engage with our partners, re-engage with anybody who has an interest in stability in the region, and do whatever we can to once again meet the objective of stopping Iran from developing nuclear capabilities, which is exactly what that deal was doing. Even this administration certified that that was the case. But do and you think Iran would sit down and negotiate? I think, it's going to be, I think it's going to be that much harder uh, now that we've seen what we've seen out of this administration. But uh, for the sake, not of the Iranians, but for the sake of American security, we have to do whatever we can to make sure that we contain that nuclear threat. And that does mean trying to get to the table once again with international partners, including the Iranians. So you would lift sanctions on Iran. How would you prevent that money from flowing to fund terror? Well, again, part of this is a question of what kind of verification we can get into a deal that's necessarily going to be different than the last one. Uh, the issue of Iranian malign activities in the region is a very serious one, and uh, one at the same time that can be dealt with on a separate track from the extremely urgent issue of stopping them from developing nuclear capabilities. Withdrawing from the deal accelerated Iran's path toward nuclear weapons at exactly the moment when we can least afford that. And if we think it's hard containing their uh, nefarious activities now, imagine what it would be like trying to do that when they also have nuclear capability in their military. So we get to the point in this clip where we start to realize that, you know, maybe foreign policy isn't Pete's strong point. Um, <laughs> he's asked uh, specifically, do you believe Trump administration about the tanker attacks from Iran. And he sort of gives this vague speculation about how the tanker attacks could have been fabricated by the Trump administration and why we shouldn't trust them. And he just throws this stuff out there without getting into specifics. And but then like right at the end, he tries to pivot into talking about, you know, what how it's important to focus on what the US needs to be doing. And then the reporter like takes the bait, which, you know, very good on her for actually asking, you know, so what would you do now? And so now they're sort of talking on his terms and he has like the opportunity to frame what he wants to do. But what does he do? He switches again to talking about what he would not do. And he goes on and on and on about all the things that he would not do and sort of bashing all of the bad things that the Trump administration did. 
I don't think in any of this does he actually talk about what he would actually do. Right. Other than re-engage. He keeps talking about re-engaging people, re-engaging our allies, re-engaging Iran. And she presses him over and over again. Like, what does that mean to re-engage? Do you really think that they would re-engage? What are all these specifics? What are your plans? What do you think is going to actually happen? And he keeps on reverting to these platitudes about, you know, things are broken. There are all these war hawks in the Trump administration. Like, they did all these bad things. Um, These are all things that I would not do. And he doesn't answer the question of what would he actually do? And so, you know, it's a good way of him sort of answering the question without actually answering the question. Uh, she does a good job of like calling him out on it. But, um, you, you know, it, he, he certainly doesn't look very good in this. In yeah, this all that he says that he would do really is to keep the past deal right with with Iran. And he says, you know, well, withdrawing from that deal accelerated Iran's activity through nukes but you know actually that that's very um speculative you know if actually withdrawing from the idea made it so that with you know iran's activity with nuclear weapons has been accelerated i mean that's that's not really you know completely true and you know what is he going to do well he's going to get to the table with international partners like, oh, great, you know, <laughs> we're not already at the table. He's going to get a verification of the deal, you know. What does that mean, a verification? It all sounds, you know, really good. And then he, he tells us that the issue is very serious, you know, like we don't already know this. And, you know, what's the objective? Well, it's stopping Iran from having nukes. And if they get nukes, that's going to be a very bad thing. What does he say here? Like, we, we understand that already, you know, uh, Pete. We, we got that that part. Um, he has this interesting little, you know, language pattern here, which is, you know, when the when the same people like John Bolton in the, in the Trump administration do this, and then he says, it makes you wonder if, dot, 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 we can really take this president at face value. Well, okay, you know, I I think that we've already kind of decided, you know, whether we can take him at face value or not, you know, by this point in his in his presidency. Um, What's interesting is how this whole thing starts off. So she asks him a closed ended question, which is, do you believe the Trump administration about the tanker attacks, you know, from uh, Iran? And that's a yes or a no question. Do you believe this yet? We can almost imagine in a congressional hearing. Yes or no. Um, and then what he does is instead of answering a yes or a no and remembering that a lot of people would just say yes, and then they would go into an explanation that would might be the typical way someone answer this. But what he says instead is he said, we're seeing that this and this and this, and what he's doing here is pacing the current experience, pacing the reality. This is a technique which is that instead of answering that question, he just goes into familiarity. He goes into what is actually happening, and he uses that as a way of spinning away from answering the question and just saying, well, here's what I'm noticing. Here's what we're, we're seeing. And then he says, well, the question is then what we're going to do. And, yes, yeah, she does pick up on, on that, but he kind of chooses his own question. So, you know, he says, the question is what we're going to do. And she says, well, yeah, so what would you do? Not like he just prepared that whole thing, you know, for him to answer the question. He said, well, what I would do is, and then he begins to answer it in this very thematic, you know, kind of way um, where he doesn't, you know, get into the details. You know, he doesn't actually answer even his own question. 
but he talks along the same lines of what he wants to talk about versus believing, you know, the Trump administration. So once again, we hear him really moving here from getting specific on foreign policy, getting specific on what he's actually going to do, and just talking about, well, security is important. Iran having nukes, that's bad. Believing the Trump administration, (laughs) don't want to do that. So yeah, there's my answer. Uh, so, you know, she does a good job of pressing him on this um, and they move into, um, you know, she she throws him a softball question or or so it seems at least. Um, and so let's take a listen to this one. Would you advise an 18 year old today to enlist under President Trump? I believe serving our country is the right thing to do. And you do it. Uh, and I felt this when I took the oath myself. Uh, you do it without regard to who's in political office because you don't know who will be leading during different times in your service. Um, It is one of the things that makes serving in the military such a leap of faith, such an act of belief in our country. Because really what you're doing is you're trusting your life, not only to the chain of command you're about to join, but to American voters. Because you're trusting that American voters will put in place leaders who will never send you into a conflict without a good reason, and who will never fail to take care of you, both while you're in uniform and afterwards. The truth is that promise has not always been fully kept. I'm worried that that promise isn't being kept right now. The idea that we should never, ever use our troops as pawns or as props. And yet we've seen just that from this administration. And yet at the end of the day, I believe that I wouldn't be running for office if I didn't believe that our constitution and our country is capable of setting uh, a better path and that when we put a foot wrong, we do something better. And we need a military composed of energetic, strong, ethical, capable people. Uh, and I think we're going to need that more than ever. So, Taylor, yeah. do you know what his answer was? That? <laughs> Would he advise an 18-year-old to enlist under President Trump I, or I, no? I, I don't know. what He said a lot around it, that's for sure. <laughs> I just... I, I, I don't understand, but but what he did do here is, again, like you said in the last clip, he goes back to sort of walking them through sort of the decision-making process. And so maybe this is his way of, you know, internally processing the information or if there's actually some motive behind it to, you know, uh, elicit some sort of feeling from the listener. Honestly, I think he was just caught off guard by the question and was trying to work through it in his own mind. Um, out loud while still answering the question um but it's not it's not really clear here but what he did do is he he tied a lot of important emotions into his answer to make it seem as though to make the listener feel as though he actually genuinely cared about the young kids who are joining the military and joining you know uh under president trump which you know i I don't think that there's any reason to doubt that he doesn't sincerely care about them yeah i actually i think his answer here was just brilliant given that this was probably not a type of question in which he would be prepared for right this isn't the type of question that his campaign would be sitting and saying well how do i answer that right um but what he does is he brings it down to just a very base emotion which is they're trusting their life in in the election process basically like basically you have to what he's saying to them is you have to make the decision you know do you trust your life to trump or do you trust your life to someone like me who served in the military and who understands that 
And it's really hard to argue with him because, again, he's a veteran. So can you, you know, say something to a veteran about what it means to serve in the military? Not really. So, you know, when he when he makes all of these kind of assertions about the emotions involved and the ideas of what that means, he's he's able to just say that and uh, really, you know, slip it in in that in that particular way where he, he makes it about the elections. He spins it off into, well, you know, we haven't always kept that promise where we're not going to send them off into war with, you know, no just cause or no, you know, justification, you know, for doing that. Um, but, and what he doesn't say here is, well, if I'm president, then that's going to change. And so now in the next clip here, uh, the final clip, he's going to be talking again about foreign policy. Um, but he again broadens this out to mean a lot more than just foreign policy. Uh, so let's take a listen here. Who is America's greatest foe? Well, I'm certainly concerned about uh, repeat Russian malign activity. For reasons we just talked about, we're worried about Iran. I'm also worried about the competition from China. Uh, you know, I'm not one of those Democrats who thinks you can wave away the China challenge and that it'll sort of take care of itself. China is that another been- veiled swipe at Joe Biden? There are 23 of us, and I haven't scrutinized everybody's China policies, but I can tell you about mine. I believe that China is using technology for the perfection of dictatorship, and that their fundamental economic and political model is a major challenge to the U.S. Not only that, it's actually being held up as a convincing alternative on the world stage to ours, because ours at the moment looks chaotic and unpredictable and unstable and uh, perhaps easier to manipulate. It's why part of how we are going to be stronger abroad is to be stronger at home. But we're disinvesting in the very elements of American competitiveness, infrastructure, education, uh, health, not to mention the need for a strong and unshakable democracy. We're disinvesting in the very things that make us competitive, while China is investing hugely, not only domestically in in things like artificial intelligence, where they could very well outpace us uh, in a matter of years, but also globally, where they are, uh, with their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, undertaking a massive, over trillion dollar level investment in various other countries, not just out of the goodness of their hearts, but in order to make friends and in order to fill a vacuum left by the U.S. appearing to withdraw from the rest of the world. That makes us worse off, and we've got to be ready to re-engage before the next century gets decided on China's terms rather than ours. Would you accept a contained nuclear North Korea rather than demanding they denuclearize? I do think that we can take steps toward peace on the Korean Peninsula in parallel with steps toward denuclearization. I think the prior framework was we can't get anywhere toward peace until we get completely to the promised land on denuclearization. I think it's possible that we could take small, incremental, verifiable steps uh, on the nuclearization, denuclearization peace while pursuing overall peace in the peninsula. But at the end of the day, with the kind of activity we're seeing now, the kind of nuclear threat we're seeing right now, the sanctions must remain in place. I'm running out of time, but I want to quickly make sure I ask you about Afghanistan, since you did serve there. Um, You promised that as president you would help end that war. How do you do that? And do you trust that you can cut a deal with the Taliban that doesn't have them repeating what they did leading up to 9-11? You know, the one thing that, uh, actually, first of all, let me say this. Five years ago, when I left Afghanistan, I thought I was one of the last troops, and we're still there. I'm worried that we're not that far away from reading about the first Afghanistan casualty, American, who was born after 9-11. We have to put an end to a war that is becoming 
endless. And the one thing that I think the Afghans, the Americans, the international community, the right and the left in our own country agree on is that we need to get out. So the question you is go just, to zero on well? troops? I think that we will always, as a country, to keep ourselves safe, be ready anywhere in the world to have a limited intelligence and special operations capability to prevent attacks on the homeland. But I do think that the time for this open-ended commitment of troops on the ground has come to an end. It sounds I also like President think that, Trump. Well, let's see if he actually delivers on what he's saying. Uh, so far, I'm not seeing uh, a lot of uh, comforting signals, especially when you see that in this engagement with the Taliban, the legitimate Afghan government, the elected government of Afghanistan, is being left on the sidelines. We should at least have them at the table. We should be engaging them, not cutting them out. If we expect our departure from Afghanistan, which will happen, to be on terms that will be relatively stable, it's not going to be uh, a perfect democratic and perfectly secure country in the near term. We just need to make sure that it is not one where attacks on the homeland can originate. And we would be better off toward that goal if we have done what we can as we depart to make sure that the Afghan government is in a strong position. And lastly, what keeps you up at night? Well, a lot of things. Uh, there's a, a nuclear threat that has never gone away. There's stateless terrorism. There's nefarious activity by so many countries. There's uh, America, really, in terms of prestige, in a kind of decline that could become permanent if we don't reverse it quickly. And I'm worried about climate disruption. This has literally woken me up at night. I remember realizing at about 2 in the morning in South Bend that the rain that usually lasts for a few minutes was going on for a few hours and discovering that we were in the midst of a thousand-year rainstorm. I was, within a matter of, of hours, uh, finding myself activating the emergency operations center of our city. I've had to do that twice in a two-year period for floods that are supposed to only happen once every few hundred years. Things are changing around us with life and death consequences. And if we're not prepared to treat climate disruption as a security issue, then we are putting my generation and anybody who comes after us at tremendous risk of having our life opportunities diminished because of the failure of those in charge now to do something about this issue across America and across the world. Mr. Mayor, thank you for your time. Good to be with you. All right, so what keeps Mayor Pete up at night? Well, he really tells us a bunch of what, you know, we, we might think that might keep anyone up at night. You know, stateless terrorism and, uh, you know, nuclear weapons, and, you know, monsters under his bed. A lot of different things, you know, will keep him up at night. But one thing literally keeps him up at night, which is the rain in South Bend. And as the, the, it keeps him up at night and, you know, he uses this to link it to, you know, climate change. And it, what you notice he does here is that he brings us into that moment. Um, he brings us into that moment by talking about he was waking up at two o'clock in the morning in South Bend. This is literally how he woke up, realizing that the rain that lasts a few minutes had been going on for hours. This, by the way, is time distortion, a hypnotic technique. And he's using this very personal example of climate change here in a very similar way as climate change deniers will use an example. So he's pointing to this and he's saying, well, this is how I personally know that climate change exists, where you would hear someone who is a climate change denier actually say, this is how I know that it doesn't exist because I can bring a snowball into the Senate floor and Therefore, climate change doesn't exist because we have snow. Um, and then, you know, he uses this kind of interesting thing. And then I was discovering that we were in the midst of a thousand year rainstorm 
I don't know what he means by that, but it is kind of interesting. And then I activated the emergency operations center in our city. And again, he brings you there so you can imagine him at the helm. And he does something similar with this question of how he was in Afghanistan. Five years ago when I left Afghanistan, which again, he's the new one, he's the young one, but that just tells you kind of how young, right? Um, I thought that we would never leave, but then he goes into, we're about to have the first American casualty who was born after 9-11. Now, why is this you know significant? Why is this important? Well, he's doing this generational shift. He's having people look back through time and realize, oh, wait, I remember when 9-11 happened. Are you telling me there were people who were born after that time who were now in Afghanistan? Somehow that seems to portray it as being really, really long and thus leads, lends credence to his argument that we need to get out and we need to you know, take steps to you know, get out of, that, out of that situation. Yeah, I think the big theme here with, uh, with Mayor Pete is that he does just this great job of, of avoiding talking about things that, you know, he's not particularly qualified on or, you know, doesn't really know a whole lot about. And instead, you know, drawing it down to a very local and a very emotional level or broadening it out to, you know, a very, you know, global level, um, something that everybody can, you know, uh, relate to or or something that's so vague that you can't really pin him down for a specific on. So, you know, with, you know, for example, that that Afghanistan example that taylor just brought up um that is you know him drawing it down to that very local level you can walk through his shoes you can sort of uh think about what he's thinking um and in that anecdote about you know there's going to be you know a child um a, a death that uh, of someone who was born after 9 11 and i think cognitively that doesn't actually mean anything but at an emotional level, that's, you know, a very important thing for a lot of listeners because they might have a child who was born after um, 9-11. Um, and for somebody who, you know, may not have a child in the military or not, but has a child, period, um, they can now envision that person that they know that was born after 9-11, you know, uh, in Afghanistan and not making it out. So that's a very, you know, that's a very concrete way of him sort of drawing that listening emotion from the listener um, in a way that I think was really skillful there. And then when he's talking about the, nu the nuclear North Korea issues, you know, he sort of uh, answers in very broad terms, um, steps toward peace in parallel with steps toward denuclearization. We don't know what these steps are or how they're going to happen. But he, you know, sort of speaks in vague platitudes that make you believe that he's actually saying something, um, but he's he's really isn't. Um, and uh, of course, with with uh, Afghanistan, there he sort of hand waves this uh, this thing about everybody agrees that we need to get out, um, which is. is not the case, but there is a lot of consensus um, around the world um, that there are certain steps that should be made to get out in certain ways or a drawdown that needs to take place. And she even sort of like presses him on that, too. Like she says, so does that mean that we should go down to zero? 
Um, and when he gets pressed on that, that's when he launches into that whole first American casualty thing. So he's getting like backed into a corner and asked for even more specifics, which he doesn't have. So what does he do? He he changes the the topic and sort of pivots to this very emotional thing. So I'm kind of surprised that she didn't do more follow up to like press him back on his specifics. And and she sort of just like allows him to get away with these emotional appeals rather than asking for policy specifics. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know how hard that is because I I am not a news interviewer, but um, it's very interesting to see, you know, that dance between the two of them. Yeah. And we see through all of this why Pete Buttigieg has gone as far as he has, because he's doing all of these types of things that we hear this is the the political playbook. This is the game plan. He's really good with his words, maybe not too great on specifics of you know foreign policy matters especially, but he's good at stringing things together. He he utilizes a lot of these these ideals which which really tie things together. And so through this whole interview, as you've heard it, you've heard him continue to take the question, reframe it, be be able to move through it like that formula that was shared in our, our episode with Tara Swords. And you hear him beginning to go through with the emotion, right? So he says here, you know, Trump delivers. Well, so far, I'm not seeing a lot of comforting signals. So it's about the comfort, you know, not what those signals actually are. Well, I think that's about all the time we've got for today. Stay tuned in two weeks for the next episode. Be sure in the meantime to head on over to our website at subliminallycorrect.com. Send us your thoughts, your concerns, your issues. Listen to some of our uh, previous episodes. Um, If you guys have uh, any sort of uh, insights that we may have missed, uh, you can head on over to Twitter and tweet at us. Let us know your thoughts. Um, We will always respond. And uh, also head on over to our Facebook, check out our page over there, share it with your friends. Um, And don't forget that iTunes um, has a great rating system. That's where uh, everybody finds out about new podcasts. Head on over there, rate us five stars. And if you really love the show and you want to keep us on the air, head on over to our Patreon. You can donate as little as uh, five bucks for a cup of coffee or all the way up to uh, paying for our server costs to keep the show on the air. I think it's only like 19 bucks. And we will talk to you in two weeks.